Hi there, this is Watchin, and you are now listening to the I Choose the Ladder podcast, a podcast for Black women on the corporate climb. This episode is brought to you by 2010 Talent, a career resource for talented Black women sharing inspiring career profiles, companies, and resources with women across the globe. Do you want to take your career to the next level? 2010 Talent specializes in helping Black women accelerate with one-to-one career coaching. Ready to invest in your future? Visit 2010talent.com for more information. In today's episode, you meet Nzinga Shaw, who is currently the Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer and concurrently serves as the Senior Vice President, Community for the Atlanta Hawks and State Farm Arena Organization. She is the first person to hold the Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer position in the National Basketball Association and for all 122 North American professional sports teams. Prior to joining the Atlanta Hawks, she has been at the forefront of leading organizational change through diversity. She serves as the Senior Vice President of Diversity and Inclusion at Edelman, which is the world's largest and most profitable public relations and integrated marketing agency. While leading diversity at Edelman, she was also the Senior Vice President of Human Resources for the Southeast and Southwest regions. For the past 15 years, she has worked as a human resources practitioner at Essence Magazine, the Yankees Entertainment and Sports Network, and the National Football League. Recently, she was appointed by the NBA to serve on the Global Inclusion Council. Her work has been recognized industry-wide, and some of the awards that she she has received include the Sports Business Journal 40 Under 40 Award, the Atlanta Business Chronicles Women Who Mean Business Award, the Network Journal's Top 20 Most Influential Black Women in Business Award, PR Week's 40 Under 40, and AOL's Makers Award. In addition to that, she's also uh, currently in Leadership Atlanta and the Regional Institute. She is my soror and a member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated and is an alumna of Spelman College and the University of Pennsylvania. Let me just say... I had such an amazing time talking to Nzinga, and I hope that you are able to get two or three things, concrete things that you can apply to your careers starting today. So good morning, Nzinga. Thank you so much for um, for joining me on the podcast today. As I mentioned in my initial art reach, I read an interview of yours, and I was like, I really need to talk to this woman. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you much for reaching out and I'm excited to uh, talk with you and your listeners. Um, So the first question, right, right now you have a job that everyone thinks is their dream job, right? You work for a professional sports team doing work that you love. But if you can think back to like your first corporate job, like how did you get into corporate America? You know, I, I have to be very honest with you. I don't have a traditional story. I was fresh out of college. It was 2001, um, right around the time of September 11th and the, the dot-com era, you know, it was just a very unsure time in the economy. And so it was tough for me to land a job right out of school. And so I took a job as a temp at Essence Magazine, and I was in the human resources department. And I'll tell you that it was probably one of the most dynamic experiences ever Um I didn't know what human resources was when I took the position. I just needed to be employed, but I had an open mind, and I just brought a lot of energy, a lot of focus to the position. I came to work early. I stayed late. I tried to soak up all of the information that I possibly could and and, and learn. And I can tell you one thing. I, that was my first experience really understanding the power of networking mm. and the power of 
staying in touch with people that you have either been directly connected with or have a connection to some type of organization or institution that you've been aligned with. So when I was um, applying for that temporary role, a woman called me and she said that she was recruiting for the job and she noticed that on my resume that I went to Spelman College and she too attended Spelman College mm. years to, um, to me. And so I guess um, that resonated with her, the fact that we had that similar experience and so she was apt to give me an opportunity to join the department. So, you know, networking and, and staying in touch with folks and being a part of your professional circles, it matters. Um, it really can determine whether or not you land a job. So I think a lot of people have a kind of misconception of what effective networking is, right? People think they go to events to get business cards and like, and then you're networked. For you, what does networking look like? Yeah, I'm, I'm really, I, I have a very different point of view about networking. Um, and I do attend a lot of events. Don't get me wrong. I think events can be very useful for thought leadership and really understanding the landscape that we're in and what new concepts are coming out of the industry that you're interested in. But I also think that doing FaceTime and shaking hands with people without making a meaningful connection and or following up with them in a meaningful way is useless. And so I'd rather go to an event and meet one person that I have some type of a connection or I've done some research on this person and determine that they um, are an expert in their space or that they can provide some answers or some insights regarding something that is interesting to me. And then I also try to figure out, well, how can I, how can this be reciprocal? How can I be able to give back to this person? Because, you know, what I've noticed um, in a lot of networking scenarios is that people that are constantly sought after feel drained. They feel, um, it's very hard to continue to give and give and pour and pour without anyone trying to reach back. And so I try to figure out how it can be reciprocal, and I also just try to make very small connections with a few people but make them very substantive. Mm. And I think what we've heard is that most people or a lot of people are good with that first follow-up but then don't necessarily know what to do to maintain and so for you, how have you, you know, maintained your relationships over time with people that you, that started out maybe as, you know, a one time I met you, we had a connection. How, what does maintenance look like? Yeah, I think it really just depends on who the person is and what you need and want from them. I think a lot of times when people network, they don't have a game plan or a strategy for what they need from the person. And so beyond doing FaceTime or beyond having an initial meeting, there was no plan or strategy for what's next, and that's why those relationships fall off. And so I think I'm very intentional, and I use a, a notebook often. I carry my notepad everywhere, write down notes, and just um, stream of consciousness and brainstorm. What do I need? How can um, building this relationship help get me there? I think when you can see something written on paper and you have a very specific strategy, then you'll have a reason to reach out and you'll be able to say, oh, well, this happened in the news and it's relevant to what you and I discussed a couple of weeks ago. And I just wanted to share my perspective and wondered if you had any thoughts as well. And then before you know it, when it becomes organic and it's it's a real relationship, then it's kind of similar to the way that you connect with your past 
past, um, whether it's your past employees or people that you have networked with at some point in your life, you just find reasons to continue that relationship. But when it's forced and it's, you know, a situation where you're shaking hands and just doing FaceTime, it's going to fall off. Mm. And so you mentioned that you started Essence, which is phenomenal because I think most people in corporate America don't get to start out their jobs at a place that is geared towards black people, um, producing content for black people. Um, And so for you, when did you or how did you decide that it was time for you to transition out of that? Like, how did you know you were ready and you'd gotten what you needed from that experience to move on to the next thing? Well, Destiny really kind of um, decided that for me. Essence was going through a very, very big transition at the time that I was there. They were being acquired by Time Inc. And so during the acquisition, um, my manager, she was very honest with me. I was young at the time. I think I was either 22 or 23 years old. But she said, you know, we're going to be acquired by time. They would likely absorb the function that we're doing um, because we're just such a small department and they already have those competencies and capabilities within their organization. And so we will likely um, not make it out of this transition And I encourage you to apply to graduate school. You know, you don't have any real, um, you know, um, things going on in your life, such as a family or a husband or children. So this might be a good time for you to pursue graduate education if that's something that you're interested in um, versus at a later time in your life when you have more responsibilities and other people to tend to. Um, and so I just took her advice. I didn't really understand the, the inner workings of what an acquisition meant and what it looks like and what layoffs mean. But before any of that could happen to me, I decided to be proactive and apply to graduate school. And so I spent the next two years at the University of Pennsylvania, um, which was a great experience for me. And I think graduate education just really opened my eyes um, to, to a, a lot of diversity, a lot of things happening in the world that I just wasn't exposed to. I went to a historically black college, and then I worked at a a primarily and predominantly black company right out of that experience. And so um, it was very important for me to study at the graduate level at a a majority institution where I was exposed to different types of people. Um, So I think that it was just perfect, and it it wasn't something that I planned, um, but it it all made sense while I was going through the process. And can you think back to your your first job out of grad school where you are now in a corporate setting that is not, you know, predominantly black. You're not in undergrad anymore with the, you know, people who look like you. Um, what was that like? What was that adjustment like? I think a lot of times people struggle, right, when they are, uh, when it's very, very clear that they're in the minority in the workplace and, like, adap- uh, adapting culturally. So do you remember back to that time and, like, what it felt like? I do. I remember, you know, I think graduate school was great preparation for what I would experience in corporate America. Again, I went to a predominantly white institution um, for for graduate study. And so my class, in my classrooms, I would be one of a couple, if not the only black person. Um, And I would have these majority um, situations where I was having majority interactions with people um, or even global, really. I mean, I studied abroad while I was in graduate school for a semester at Oxford, and that was a very different experience than I was used to. So um, I think two years in that environment prepared me well for what I would um, experience 
in my first job out of graduate school, which was at the Yankees Entertainment and Sports Network, which is a predominantly white organization, um, sports-focused, you know, so also heavily male-dominated organization. And I think that, um, you know, going to a school like Spelman for undergrad really um, instilled some values that were very important for me to have self-value, self-worth, feel um, confident in everything that I brought to the table so that when I was put in a situation where I was in the minority, I was confident enough in myself and my abilities to keep my head high and stand tall and not let my difference define what I was able to bring to the table. Mm. And you left Essence in grad school and then you went into sports. And I think that's a lot of people's dreams. Was it one of yours? No, I mean, it's so interesting watching um, my career path and journey has while very organic and things seem to make sense after they happen, I never planned things the way that a lot of my friends and colleagues have planned their careers. Like, I have friends that are medical doctors that were bio majors in undergrad, and then they went to med school, and then they did a residency, and now they're, you know, performing in their in their um, day jobs, and, and they knew that was their path, and they were very clear. The way that my career evolved was um, a lot of times happenstance, but a lot of times being prepared and understanding the content and understanding the, the broader landscape of the industries that I were, was working in versus saying, I'm going to sports next or I'm going to public relations next. It was just really just trying to be a student and a scholar of, of understanding, you know, broad business and what makes the world go round. And I think that um, always being prepared and always um, having – an open mind was critically important to me landing the gigs that I did. But, yeah, I never targeted sports. Um, so people a lot of the times get um, stuck in the pivot, right? So for you, when have you – how do you know when it's time to move on to the next, um, the next job, the next opportunity? And then when you're pivoting, how have you been able to do that effectively? That's a great question. I will tell you that when I pivot, everybody, I think deep down inside watching, everybody knows what their breaking point is or what their boiling point is. And I have, on many occasions, experienced situations in corporate America where I knew that my time was up because mm. people were either people that were in charge of my career were not helping me to develop or were not providing opportunities for me to stretch and grow beyond my existing day job. Um, I felt a very um, strong and hard glass ceiling above my head that I, I just pos I just could not break myself. And I, I also have had very honest conversations with myself about, you know, what, what matters? What's really important to you? Is a paycheck important? Is learning important? Is being respected at work important? You know, I've had all of these internal dialogues with myself, and then when I get to the point where I say, these things are not aligning hmm. for how I want to feel versus what is actually happening to me and what I'm experiencing are not aligned, then I have to make tough decisions and say, Yes, it may be awesome to work at the NFL, and it may be everyone's dream job in America, especially people that want to work in sports. It's the largest sports property in the nation, and it's very profitable, and Super Bowl is a big deal, but this doesn't feel good to me personally. Mm. 
I am going to have to make a decision to move forward and perhaps go down a path um, that is not as popular, but a path that will be more fulfilling for me um, ultimately. And so I've always, um, you know, I'm proud that I've been able to make those tough decisions in my life. I have a lot of people around me that have um, stayed in jobs for 10 plus years and are miserable Mm -hmm. because they don't see a way out and they don't have the courage to do better. And I just, that has never been my story. Mm. And I read somewhere that um, at a point in your career, there was someone who was a manager of yours um, and you had done you know, the thorough work to put together um, kind of a strategic proposal of where you saw your next career move being. And the title that you wanted was a C-suite title. And were, you were pretty much told that that would never happen because that person did not have a C-suite title. For you in that moment, right? One, do you have mentors that, did you have mentors that you could go to and say, um, hey, this is what's happening at work. Have you ever experienced it? What should I do? Or was it just one of those moments where you kind of felt stuck? You know, so the situation um, was that I wanted to transition into a diversity and inclusion role. I had been working in human resources for the the majority of my career and saw that there was an organizational need for diversity and inclusion. So it wasn't just self-motivated in that I wanted to have a C-suite role and do, you know, this work, but it was the organization needed it. There were um, clients that we were serving that were asking us for more diverse counselors on their accounts and more insights so that their work could really – mirror what what they needed to reflect in, in the global marketplace that they're serving. And so when I saw that there was a deficit in our organization and I saw there was an opportunity, I put together a strategic plan that was very well thought out. It wasn't something that I did overnight. It took many weeks and involved a series of people, both internally and externally, to really understand, like, how will this work get done? And so when I presented that work to my manager, I was very deflated to hear her say, my title is not chief HR officer, so what makes you think that you can be a chief diversity officer? Um, and so, yes, I did ask. I talked to mentors. I, was, I, I talked to people close to me because it was not something that I ever thought that I would hear, especially after doing such great due diligence and really positioning this as an opportunity for the organization. And so I remember distinctly that two mentors who are very different from one another gave me very different advice. And so I learned through having mentors that, number one, you need more than one mentor. You cannot find all of the things that you need in one person. Um, So, for instance, you know, I have, when I became a mom for the first time, there were women that I relied on that have been mothers, that have Mm. six kids, you know, and so they can help me in the the, um, realm of being a good mom, but perhaps they can't give me business advice. And then there are people that work in corporate America who have been in jobs for 30-plus years. I rely on them for advice on how to perform in corporate America because they're they're tried and tested in that space. So I think we have to seek out mentors in the same way. You can't look for one person to be your end-all, be-all. And so I remember reaching out to two people in this instance. One mentor was a black woman a lot older than me, and the other is a white Jewish man, very different than me. And their advice was very different. Um, And so, you know, I tried not to be demoralized by the situation. I, I, 
I believe that mentors have your best interest at heart, whether they're the same type of person as you or whether they're extremely different than you. And so you have to believe that your mentors are giving you advice that is based out of goodwill and based out of wanting to see you succeed. And you have to use your own intuition and take the best of of what you can digest and understand and then implement your own story for your own life. And so that's how I went about it. Mm. And you mentioned briefly about, you know, having your first child. As someone who is a high achiever, did you think about how having kids would impact your career before you had them? Or was it a, I knew I was meant to be a mom and so career would just have to figure itself out? Yeah, I would have to say the latter is the, is the truth for me. I mean, I am an only child who has two deceased parents. And so mm. a lot of the things that I have experienced in life has been either on my own or through trial and error, learning lessons the hard way. Uh, my mom was dead by the time I was 16. So, you know, going to the prom or graduating high school or, or you know, having the you know, first boyfriend, all of these milestones that young women rely on their moms for, I just never had. And so I have always always had a, a deep sense of wanting to be a mother inside of me. Mm. Um, I knew that I would always be successful in life just because I'm a hard worker. And, you know, even if it's not successful in corporate America, I'll start my own business. I'll do my own thing. I'll figure out a way to, um, you know, make myself proud because that's just that's the core of who I am. So I was never worried about, um, you know, will a child interfere, interrupt with my destiny because I just am a hard worker. That's the core of who I am, and so that will never change. But being a mom, thats it's so interesting that you would ask the question because I was having a conversation with a good friend recently, and she is around the same age as me. We're almost 40, and she doesn't have children. And so um, and she's very successful in her career, and she asked me, she said, you know, now that you're a mom, do you feel like um, you could have been a mom or you could not have been a mom, and would your life be the same if you weren't? And I told her, I said, you know, quite honestly, I can't even remember life without my baby, Mm. um, and I don't want to remember life without her. And so for me, I think family first, kids first, um, you know, certainly want to be successful in my job, but if I had to choose one or, the, or over the other, it wouldn't even be a question. Mm. That's so beautiful. That oh, is absolutely beautiful. Um, because I think it is something that, you know, people think about. You think about, you know, climbing the corporate ladder and you hear all the stories about men who, you know, they have wives and so their wives can stay home with the kids and, and they can travel and do all those things. But when you're a woman and a black woman, right, and depending on what your support system is or your, you know, your bandwidth at work or the flexibility, like it could potentially have an impact that people are scared to to explore. That's absolutely right. Mm. Um, so thinking back to, you know, career progression, um, can you think about a time when you maybe felt stuck in what you did to get unstuck? Sure. I mean, I, I felt very stuck when I was at the National Football League. I felt um like I was doing so much and I kept taking on more responsibility. You know, when I started that job, I was a generalist in human resources overseeing two groups, I think marketing and consumer products. By the time two or three years passed, I was overseeing marketing, consumer products, events, public relations. Um, There were a couple of other groups as well. And so I started to feel overwhelmed because 
there was no path for, well, you're doing all of this work, but then what's the next step? Or, um, you know, how can we move beyond being tactical and executional to having a more strategic voice and really playing a role in the overall organizational strategy? And so, um, you know, I've had many conversations with superiors and higher-ups and, and, you know, asked for clarity and direction on how can I get unstuck, how can I move past being an executor to being a strategist. And, it, you know, it was like um, the target kept moving. Every time I would accomplish something, the target moved again, and it would move again, and it would move again. It was like a, a hamster in a wheel just running, just chasing, chasing, chasing with no end goal. And I think I was in, I was introspective enough and honest with myself enough to know that that would never change um, despite my greatest efforts. And so I had a real conversation and said, it's time to move on. Mm-hmm. And like I said earlier, I think you know, I think when a person has reached all that, you know, the, the, the highest heights that they can possibly reach and their maximum potential in that position, they know when to move on. Mm-hmm. And so oftentimes people don't move on because of fear um, because, you know, they're scared, you know, will I be able to uh, attain something better or, you know, am I as really as good as I think? And all of these questions pop into our heads. But I think that, again, if you're doing long, hard work, if you're putting in the time and the effort, there will be other people externally that find you just as valuable as the company that you're in. And if the company you're in doesn't find you valuable, then you've got to go. Your life is, you know, life is short. It's limited time that we have here on this planet to contribute in a meaningful way. And so, you know, there there has to be a point in the in the situation where you just draw the line in the sand and say enough. Mm. Um, and fast forward in your career, you not only ended up with the C-suite title, you did it in a historic way in that you were the first to ever hold a chief diversity and inclusion officer title within the sports world in general. Um, were you scared? You know what? At the time, I was not scared, which is interesting. And it's so funny because when I had that conversation with my manager and she told me I would not be a chief diversity officer, that night I went home. I I remember it very vividly. I went home and I wrote down on a piece of paper the date. And I said, I will be a chief diversity and inclusion officer before I'm 36 years old. I don't know why I said that specifically. I don't know why I I felt so compelled to write it, but I wrote it down and I put it on a magnet on my refrigerator because I knew one place I had to go to every day was the fridge. I have to eat (laughs) to survive. And so I would be forced to look at that note every day. And that's when I was 33 years old. And I'll tell you, on my 35th birthday, on the exact day of my 35th birthday, the Atlanta Hawks offered me the job as chief diversity officer. So I I, I met that goal. I I got the chief diversity officer title before I was 36 years old. Um, So I wasn't scared. I I was excited. I was... I was optimistic that God was real um, Mm. and that he had showed his face to me by allowing my greatest dream to come true and realizing it in the manner in which I thought that I would. Um, And so I actually felt excited because I said, this is so awesome. Like, how many times do people get to tackle their their greatest challenge or or something that they want to do and it and it comes to life. Now it's on me. I mean the only person that can make this work or not work will be me. Mm. Um so I was excited. Mm. 
I think um, a lot of times we're afraid, especially as black women, because, you know, we get judged pretty harshly um, to take on new responsibilities that are more visible because then you're if you fail or you make a mistake, it's on, you know, on the world stage in front of everyone. And a lot of times like you're one of or the one black woman in that position. So for you, can you think about a time in your career where you made a mistake and you thought that like it was the end of the world and then looking back, it was actually really good for your development? Oh goodness, which time? <laughs> I mean, I think I've, I, I have made mistakes along the way on a variety of occasions. Um, and sometimes, you know, I have perceived them to be earth shattering, um, perceived my mistakes to be things that would make me or break me. Mm. And um, I will just tell you this, uh, the world goes on. Most of the time, if we're not curing cancer or doing something that is saving a life, it's not as serious as you think. Mm. I don't want to diminish the fact that mistakes do matter and that um, the organization can suffer if you're not um, cautious about the work that you're doing and really crossing your teeth and dotting your eyes. But uh, remember one thing, but people have always made mistakes. The people that are in the C-suite, CEOs, they likely have become CEOs because they have made so many mistakes and learned from them. I think that's the one thing that people forget to do when they make mistakes is to learn. If you allow a mistake to overcome um, your being and your psyche and diminish your self-worth and really just, you know, cloud your mind and, and, and make you forget about all of the great things that you bring to the table, well, then you're being defeated. And that's not the purpose of mistakes. I think mistakes are, are actually very necessary in our growth. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to learn lessons because things happen the wrong way or the hard way, and then you know not to replicate that in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, I think elephants, I, you know, I, I have a lot of elephants around my house, not all, only because I'm a member of Delta Sigma Theta, but because I just think they're just very majestic animals that um, have a, a great story. You know, their ears are huge because they're great listeners. And an elephant, um, when they cross a dangerous path or they see something awful that has taken place, their their memory is so awesome that they'll never return. They'll never make that mistake again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we can learn a lot from, from those majestic animals. And um, I don't think of mistakes as things that will overtake me or um, that will define whether or not I'm ultimately successful. But but if you keep making the same mistakes um, and you're not learning the lesson, then they will actually keep you'll keep getting presented with these challenges um, because that's just the nature of of the world and how life works. So Mm. it's very important to to take notes when you when you make a mistake. Mm. Um, And let's talk about um, corporate culture just for a little bit. I know right now there's a a lot of conversation around bringing your whole authentic self to work. Um, And I think depending on the corporate environment, some people's uh, authentic self looks a little different. I looked up pictures of you, like you wear your hair natural or straight, or, you know, you have variety in your, in your look. Do you feel like you are at a place in your career where you bring your whole authentic self to work? Yes, but I have never felt like I didn't, and I know that is unique um, because I I have seen and experienced a lot of people hide important facets of their life because they think that if they expose themselves, whether it's their sexual orientation or if they wear their natural hair that's very kinky or 
Um, you know, if they happen to um, disclose that they're a recent, you know, divorcee, whatever's going on, people feel scared that, that the organizations that they're a part of will retaliate and or hold those things against them. And so I've seen people really um, diminish who they are and hide themselves um, just to fit in at work and just to survive, and I think that is a very dangerous place for an organization and a culture to embody, um, because right now we're in such a dimensional world, and there are so many um, different types of people and so many great insights that they can bring to the workplace that can actually extend the business and teach us about new customers, teach us about new fans, um, help us understand the way that the world is moving to enhance our business, and if you don't have those insights inside of your company or you don't allow people to be honest about those insights, then you're really just um, stifling your business from from being um, successful. So I think companies that have strong corporate cultures or companies that allow people to wear purple hair to work or allow people to put a picture of their same-sex partner on their desk and not have people, you know, shy away or act weird because of it. have, you know, an organization where a senior executive can wear natural hair and not be judged or thought that they are less smart or bringing less to the table, um, but really seen as an equal. And and I think those companies are few and far between. I really do. I think that, um, yeah, we're in the year 2018, but I think we have a long way to go. I think we've seen, uh, unfortunately, a lot of things play out in the media in the past couple of years that have almost given us the sense that we've taken a step backwards as a society as it relates to race relations and gender relations and sexual orientation and ageism and all of these isms that, we, that we're so fearful of. And so if we're bringing that into our organizations and not allowing people to bring their full self to work, then we are, we are hurting our organizations as a whole. And it's, it's sad. Mm. So we know that you, well, you work for the Atlanta Hawks and sports is, as someone who works in sports also, um, sports is a a very male dominated industry, especially when you look at the front offices um, of a lot of these organizations. And um, we know communication styles is different, right? And so when you think about how you communicate, do you try to avoid the stereotypes of like being an angry black woman or anything? Do you switch up your communication style because of the industry that you work in? No, I personally don't, but I have been um, accused of being rude, (laughs) and um, I have been accused of uh, being overly direct at times, and um, I find that very interesting. It's a very interesting dynamic. You know, I'm in a room with um, a lot of men often, a lot of white men often, a lot of A-type personalities um, that have very strong points of view who are um, extremely confident in their points of view and express themselves in that manner. And so I have to operate in the world that I am living in. And so if I'm in a room of high-powered, you know, high-energy, A-type people, I meet them where they're at. Mm. Um, You know, and so I have been given the feedback that, well, that wasn't really the kindest way you could have delivered that message. It's like, well, you know, I'm just playing ball in, in your field. Mm. Um, so, I, you know, it's, it's interesting because I think that most people, especially black women, would try to um, perhaps 
diminish their voice or try to, you know, take a, a less harsh tone when speaking. And I think I'm the opposite. I think, you know, I try to meet people where they're at. If this is how you want to communicate, well, then I'm going to meet you where you're at. Um, so I've never been scared of being perceived as an angry black woman. I just want to be heard the same way that my colleagues are heard. And if that's how they're heard, then I've got to meet them where they're at. Mm. Um, looking at holistically at your career, um, what are three skills that you think that you've had to develop over time to be successful um, sitting in the C-suite? Great question. Um, I would say the first skill is, is listening. Mm. You know, when you're in the C-suite, again, you're around a lot of A-type strong personalities and everyone's a talker and everyone's got their point of view and they, they're they going to get it out and they're going to fight for their people and they're going to fight for their agenda. And when you talk so much and you don't actually take the time to listen to what people are saying and absorb the information that's being fed to you, you miss a lot of key points and a lot of messages that could have steered you in a different direction and or um, informed you to do work in a different way or to, in a way that would advance your agenda. And so I think there's so many lessons that are learned because people are just not active listeners. Mm. I make it a point to really, you know, I'm not one of those people that have to talk to be heard. Um, I can sit in a, in a meeting and really say not too much. Um, but the thing is, when you do add value and you do decide to speak, then you need to say something that's important that can uh, make people remember that you were there and that you added value. But just talking just for the sake of talking and not hearing anyone else is not um, not a good thing. Mm. Another skill I would say um, that I've acquired over time is to be open-minded. I think that um, when I started in my career, I was very stringent with my point of view, and it was my way or the highway, and I just, you know, if my mind was made up, that's what it was, and I think over time, um, you can, again, and it, it couples with the, the listening skill, but you can learn how to um, adjust your point of view, and you may not be right. I mean, just because you're passionate about something in the beginning doesn't mean that you have all of the information or the knowledge to really understand how holistically that fits into the big picture. And so if you remain open-minded, um, then you can really learn some things that would not have pre pre presented themselves otherwise. Mm. Um, and then I, I think a third skill... I would say, I don't know if it's a skill or a quality or a trait, but I would I would call it being empathetic. Mm. I think that um, when you're working with people, there are a lot of dynamics and situations that are occurring in people's lives that are happening beyond their day jobs. Um, and sometimes people are struggling and going through challenges. You know, I've worked with a person who was on a transition um, between from a male to a female. That's, that's, that's a very hard journey to be on while you're still trying to juggle your job, right? Mm -hmm. And so you have to have empathy. And, and, you know, I've had a situation recently where a co coworker lost her mother and was just very distraught by the situation. And so um, understanding that at the end of the day, we are all human beings and we do bleed the same and we feel the same and cry the same, that's important because when you lose empathy and you lose your um, 
a sense that people are all valuable. I think that's when the corporate culture starts to really break down, and I think that's when you have situations where people can't bring their whole selves to work and people are, are hiding in shame and experiencing mental illness and, and depression um, because they just can't be honest and free. So being empathetic to me is also something that I've learned. So I think that we have romanticized, myself included, (laughs) the concept of what it means to be a C-suite executive, right? In my mind, you are getting up, your makeup's getting done, someone's blown out your hair, your clothes are waiting in your like private jet is awaiting to whisk you off somewhere amazing and and exotic for your job. I think, what would people be surprised to learn about what it actually means to be a C-suite level executive? I think sometimes people do experience experience those things in the C-suite, <laughs> but I think that for me, um, I think people would be surprised to learn that C-suite executives are regular people, right? So they're not um, living this um, highly romanticized life of the rich and famous, but they're people that are parents, they're people that are married, they're people that are, um, you know, giving and philanthropic and, and care about the arts and care about causes and care about humanity um, beyond just the day job that they're doing. And so um, I think that people also think when you're in the C-suite, like the only thing that defines you is your job. Mm. They'll say, you know, they'll introduce you to others and say, she's the chief diversity officer of the Hawks. It's all, I get that a lot of times. This is in Zynga. She's, she's in charge of diversity. She's the, it's the, the way that they define you. And, you know, I would much rather be defined as saying, this is Lacey's mom. Mm. She's so important and she, she means more than anything. And, and I would be more proud to have you introduce me as Lacey's mom versus the chief diversity officer of the Hawks. So, um, I think that that people would be surprised that people in the C-suite um, are not as wed to their job as you would think. Mm. Um, outside of your education, what do you think the most, uh, the best investment you've made in your professional development has been? Oh well, I mean, like so, you're, despite like leadership programs, you mean outside of that kind of stuff. Um, sure. It could be a leadership program or something else, just like outside of like your Spelman education in grad school. Yeah, no, I mean, so I'm so I'm a part of a program right now called Leadership Atlanta, and um, it's a very prestigious program in the city of Atlanta where um, about 80 people are selected on an annual basis to go through a rigorous um, really undertaking of, you know, the, the history of Atlanta and some of the major challenges and issues facing our city. And we collectively put our heads together and figure out ways to solve these challenges. And we learn about, um, you know, different facets of what makes Atlanta great. I'm so proud to be a part of that program. I'm meeting people and interacting with folks that I just would not meet in my day job. Um, And I'm talking about people from very, very prestigious organizations that have a breadth of experience and just bring so much diversity to the table. And so I think it's important for people, if they can and if there are resources available, to um, take part in leadership development programs and take part in just organic networking opportunities where you listen to panels of thought leaders that are experts in their space or – 
you know, have an opportunity to learn something beyond what you, you learned in college because you'll learn in life that this is an everlasting journey that we're on. The you know, Learning and uh, consuming information and absorbing lessons regarding, you know, ways that you can be successful and add more value, you don't learn that stuff in a classroom. You learn that stuff in real life, on-the-job practical experience and through just having conversations with real everyday people. So um, for me, you know, participating in Leadership Atlanta and other types of programs like that have been invaluable. Mm. With the growing attention that's being paid to entrepreneurship, especially um, black female entrepreneurs, um, what has kept you in corporate? You know, I think being an entrepreneur is a hard job. I have a couple of friends that are entrepreneurs. They struggle. it is tough work. You know, you don't have the comfort of a stable check. You don't have the comfort of uh, being able to really brainstorm with a bunch of different people about is the strategy right or wrong. Everything falls on you. And I feel like for me personally, it would be a very heavy burden, um, p- perhaps one that I am not ready to take on Um Especially with, you know, a child. I have one baby. I have one on the way. So you really want your kids to be in a stable environment and have some of the things and resources that I wasn't able to have as a person growing up. And I think entrepreneurship really scares me personally mm-hmm. because, and I take my hat off to everyone that's an entrepreneur because I think there's a level of braveness. Um, and courage that a person has to bring to the table in order to be a successful entrepreneur. So, you know, I'm I'm quietly a little bit jealous of entrepreneurs because I think <laughs> that they are so courageous. Um, and then looking at your job and the work that you do, what is the thing about it that brings you either the most pride or the most joy? For me, the, the most pride that I get in my job is being able to connect people um, to the sports community that have not had a chance to interact with us. And, and what I mean, so when I started my job, no one, no sports team in Atlanta, and we have a lot of sports teams. We're a very unique city um, in that we have the WNBA, the NBA, the NFL, Major League Baseball, Major League Soccer. Like There are a lot of sports organizations in Atlanta, and no sports organization was participating in the Pride Parade until I took on this job. And I thought that that was just such low-hanging fruit. What a great community of people here in Atlanta um, who have discretionary funds, who want to go out and have a good night, who want to feel connected to something, but have been shunned for so long. And they're also a very intersectional group of people. So, you know, you can find black people that are LGBT. You can find white people that are LGBT, Hispanic, Asian, old, young, short, tall, you know, Jewish, Christian, the list goes on. And so for us to be able to really uh, reach out in a way that was authentic and say, you're welcome in our arena, uh, we want you to enjoy and we want you to feel like there is a fan experience for you and your family. For me to be able to make that connection come to life in a real way where now there are other teams participating in Pride and other teams reaching out to this community, that's huge. That's groundbreaking. I mean, that that for me is what the definition of diversity and inclusion really is. It's not just black and white. It's not race relations only. Of course, for me, race relations has been at the center and has really been the guiding light that got me here. But I think beyond that, being able to expand my wings um, 
even being the first um, arena in the southeast to have a sensory inclusion room, which we just um, launched in our arena so that families that have autistic kids or if um, someone suffers from PTSD or any type of sensory need can come to our arena and have a safe place to enjoy the game with their family that's not overly loud and, you know, uber sensitive, you know, overly, um, you know, sensory, you know, uh, I don't know the word I'm trying to look for, but not too many different emotions happening where mm-hmm. they can just have a calm night but still enjoy the game. Us being able to bring that to, to State Farm Arena is awesome. So I am. That's what I'm proud of. That's what I define diversity and inclusion as. Mm. And so the next series of questions are what I like to call our lightning round questions. Don't overthink the answer. It's just the first thing that comes to mind. Um, what's one piece of career advice you wish you'd gotten sooner in your career? Never cry at work. <laughs> what's the career lesson that took you the longest to learn, but has had the biggest impact on your career? Everyone's not out to get you. Mm. What's the one book that's either had the biggest impact on your career or that you could read over and over again? Winning by Jack Welsh. And lastly, we all know that career decisions are most times made when you're not in the room. So what do you hope people are saying about you when you're not in the room? She's a change agent. She's somebody that will get things done. She's going to make a difference. Mm. And on that note, Nzenga, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Um, I learned so much, and I can't wait to share it with everyone. Oh, thank you, Watch, and I'm so excited that you uh, took the time to chat with me, and I hope that you and your listeners were able to, to gain something valuable from today's conversation. So as I hope you got from that episode, Nzinga is amazing and just a wealth of knowledge. My three takeaways from this episode, one, listen, and we've heard this time and time again um, in the episodes that I've aired thus far, your ability to listen has such a huge impact on the opportunities that you're given and the kind of work that you get to do. Number two, write things down. So two years to the date of writing down what her goal was, it came true and She didn't just write it down, but she actually did work to get there. So be clear, write down the things that you want, and then make sure that you are doing the work to get there. And the third thing that was super important for me is that you can't get everything in one person. I know we always talk about mentors and the importance of having mentors and the impact that they have on your career, but I would encourage you to diversify. So if you have one mentor, maybe find a second or a third person who can round out the perspectives that you receive as it pertains to your career. Now, as always, if you'd like to keep the conversation going, join us in our Facebook group, I Choose the Ladder, and you can also connect with us on Instagram. Until next time, thank you for listening.